Hello and welcome to the show. This is part two of our coverage of Isabella of Castile. And when we left Isabella in part one, she had just set the Spanish Inquisition spinning. A quick recap for those of you who don't feel like going back right now to episode one. A princess was expected to live a life as a political pawn not as a ruler. But she changed the game with some power moves, including choosing her own husband and forcefully claiming the crown. She began her rule strong with a really bright future. She consolidated government. She instituted the police. She got nobility under control. Then came some dark times. Using her chief weaponry of fear, surprise, ruthless efficiency, and fanatical devotion, she and her husband Ferdinand began the Spanish Inquisition. Slowly at first, it was the Jews who they thought weren't converting properly to Christianity. And then the Muslims. And then anyone not deemed Christian enough were fined, exiled, or executed for the next 300 years. It's about 1482. Isabella is 31. She has three children. She's pregnant with twins. And it's time to settle down. Ha, ha, ha. No. Well, our old friend and neighbor to the south, Ali of Granada, has decided that two years of peace was enough. Kind of inspired by his hero, Mehmet the Conqueror, Ali of Granada attacked a city that was actually within Castile's boundary, his neighbor to the north, and it was a bloodbath. Residents were slaughtered, survivors were taken away to Granada as slaves, and Mr. Ali then used his first city as a base from which to start attacking other cities in Castile. It was time to act. As far as Ferdinand and Isabella were concerned, their quest was clear. It was their goal and destiny to reclaim Granada from the Muslim invaders who'd seized it in the 700s. They feel perfectly justified in taking it back. My question is, how long is between taking it back and just taking it? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I, know. Um, I mean, they were they were invaded. And so that was legitimate. But like the whole overwhelming, like, we're going to take it back. Well, the Spanish views were clear. Seven centuries of Spanish heroes, and I'm coming from the Spanish perspective, have clawed land back from the Muslim conquerors. And this whole process had a name. It was called the Reconquista, the Reconquering. And Ferdinand and Isabella were about to get the last piece of this puzzle slammed into place by hook or by crook. And I am not sure that Ali of Granada had counted on the weight of generations of resentment hitting him in the face um, when he <laughs> poked the bear. You know, um, these are people who cannot bear idleness. These are people who need a project. And right when they started getting a little bored, things were going along too smoothly. Along comes him and hands them a quest on a plate. Not only that, they were people who were experienced at war and who had armies at their disposal. Foolish move. Well, we cannot possibly get into the battle for battle timeline. That is not what this podcast is all about. I will tell you, um, there is an episode of a podcast called Tides of History called The End of the Reconquista. Um, it gives you a little background. The actual battling starts around 23 minutes in. So we'll provide you a link to that if that's your thing. That's fine. That's just not where we're going to go. Isabella excused herself from a council of war to deliver twins. First a girl named Maria and then a stillborn baby. It was a rough, rough delivery. Nevertheless, both Isabella and Ferdinand were personally at war. I mean, personally on the premises. They took the whole family on campaign, um, at least at base camp. You know, no one had baby gap battle armor. 
No. Um, but as they got older, especially the older kids were not shielded from the realities of war. There was a point at which young Isabella, the princess, was actually behind the lines of a city in siege without either of her parents and had to be rescued. So what a youth, what a childhood. <laughs> so the sight of Isabella, the crowned queen on her white horse, inspired, as it was meant to, the same fervor in the troops that Joan of Arc had inspired in her own troops all those years ago. But even though she's pictured in battle dress, even though she's called, quote, the warrior, Isabella did not believe that it was seemly for women to take up arms and go to war. Despite the example she held so dear of Joan of Arc, personally taking her sword and, you know, taking an arrow in the shoulder and etc. into battle, Isabella was behind the scenes. She was a quartermaster, which means supply chain expert, and mm -hmm. also very good at um, the planning, the st strategic moves. And she wasn't afraid to talk to the leaders of other countries to get advice. She talked to uh, French and German military experts to ask them, you know, what kind of weapons should my army be having? What kind of things should we be doing? What's out there on the market right now? She wasn't afraid to be a modern ruler. You know, she didn't have to be well, we've always done it this way. I kind of was laughing <laughs> about that because I am not sure that this is totally generalizing about the sexes, by the way. I mm. think Ferdinand felt the pressure to pretend he already knew things, mm -hmm. right. whereas Isabella, as a woman, had none of that background um, right. and no expectations. Like, of course, people are going to think she's not experienced in war. So if she asks a question, they're going to feel flattered rather than mock the person that asked the way they might have if it had been Ferdinand. Do you know what right. I'm saying? So oh, that was I an advantage she had. Mm -hmm, definitely. And she put a naval fleet out in the Mediterranean. That was smart. And since she was sending all these valuable Spanish lives into battle, she saw wisdom in keeping her investments alive, if you will. She made sure that there was medical tents staffed with the doctors and equipment, surgeons, anything the 1480s dollars could buy. She made sure that these tents were set up down by the front and they were called the Queen's Hospitals. They were medical tents and it was very smart. I do just want to be clear, though, in the interest of relatively unbiased eyes that during this campaign that no one's hands were clean on either side, atrocity-wise. I'm constantly amazed by the disregard for human life in many time periods and especially during war. Both Muslims and Christians made innocent blood literally run in the streets. Both sides assaulted women in the field. Both sides kidnapped women and children and sent them home as slaves of one sort or another. Both looted, both jeered at and purposely disrespected the religious practices and sacred spaces of their enemies. Every single one of them was horrible. No one gets a pass, at least in my mind. I mean, who would be a civilian anywhere in Granada? I literally do not know how you wouldn't just expire in fear of, in advance of everything happening. I don't know how anyone made it through. I mean, obviously some did, but I don't know how. It was a scary time to be alive, that's for sure. Isabella took another break from laying waste to everyone when she was 34 to have her last child, Catalina, who we've already covered on her own episode in the Dark Ages of the History Chicks. It's episode 22. Catalina, you say. I don't remember it, Catalina. Well, way back in 2012, we covered her as Catherine of Aragon, wife of Henry VIII. Um, but moving on from there, Isabella's visible, active, and effective involvement in this decade-long war has left its mark on something you 
probably have in your house right now, unless you sold it in a garage sale like we did. The game of chess <laughs> had existed before Isabella, of course. And um, way back on the Indian subcontinent, there was a game called Chaturanga, which was a war game of kings that involved pieces moving very similar to modern day chess. However, the piece next to the king was called the vizier and could only move one space in either direction. But during Isabella's reign, somehow the queen became the most powerful piece on the board, didn't she? Yes, she did. Once the queen's out on the chessboard, you have to be a lot more careful because she will get you. <laughs> okay. I don't play chess. <laughs> well, once the queen has come out from behind the pawns, um, you have to sit up straighter. There's a lot more thought that has to go into each move. And that's just like what happened in real life. Once <laughs> Isabella has come into the picture, <laughs> you better straighten up and mind your P's and Q's. Speaking of coming out from behind the pawns, she still had kids to raise. And Isabella and Ferdinand really believed in educating them, the, the girls and their son alike. They all had the same education. And Isabella herself continued to be educated. She learned Latin in her 30s. It was the language of diplomacy. And it was kind of the lingua franca that everyone understood. And um, Ferdinand, as I recall, never bothered. <laughs> but who cares about him? <laughs> So Isabella and Ferdinand successfully completed the Reconquista. Granada was part of Spain again. Check. And these, quote, warriors for the faith, the Catholic monarchs, as they began to be called. Catholic is Christian at this point. You know, right. Martin Luther King didn't come around until decades later. So mm -hmm. Catholic equals Christian. Christian equals Catholic at this point. So these Catholic monarchs decided that they were going to enforce a rule that they'd had on the books for a while. But the edict went out this time. It's going to be for real. Throughout Spain, all Jewish people will convert to Christianity or get out. Some of these Jewish families had been in Spain for 1,400 years. Don't care. Pack your shit. Get on the road. It was called the Alhambra Decree or the Act of Expulsion. And of course, translated from Spanish, we order all Jews and Jewesses of whatever age they may be who live, reside, and exist in our kingdoms and lordships that by the end of the month of July of the present year, they depart from all of those said realms. That July was four months away. So they had four months to liquidate everything. You could sell your property, but couldn't take silver or gold out of the country. It was forbidden. So what are you going to sell it for? You couldn't also take weapons out of the country. You couldn't take horses out of the country. And why the Jews in particular? Well, Isabella seemed to feel that they were a bad influence on the conversos. The conversos were backsliding back into Jewish practices. And what they needed was a clean slate and no Jewish people around to remind them of the practices of their forefathers. So they had to go. The exodus began and the, quote, good people of Spain defrauded the Jews of debt, like they wouldn't repay their debts. You can't come back and sue us in court. So good luck to you. They charged exorbitant fees for supplies. They took money for transportation and then vaporized, didn't ever take them anywhere. They robbed them. They beat them. Tens of thousands of Jewish refugees died trying to reach somewhere, anywhere to live. 
The more fortunate ended up in Turkey, where the Sultan had sent ships to evacuate the Jews from Spain and um, made it an act punishable by death to mistreat one, not because he was a good man, but because he could charge them harsher taxes than anyone else. And he laughed at Ferdinand like, that fool just gave me a bunch of money. (laughs) So, I mean, you know, he's painted as like the savior and he did send ships and he did save lives, but not out of altruism, really. No, no, not at all. Um, Also, some made it all the way to the Netherlands, which seems to be just the only place in Europe they could go and be relatively welcomed. The city of Amsterdam, more specifically, really benefited from its new inhabitants. And if you've ever heard the term Sephardic Jew, that refers to those refugees from Spain and Portugal that ended up all over the world. And Sephirod is the ancient Roman Jewish name for the Iberian Peninsula. And lest we forget, the Spanish Inquisition is still ticking along merrily in the background in Spain to handle the, quote, fraudulent converso problem. So if you're one of these Jewish people who converted rather than have to uproot yourself from 1400 years of your own family history, you still have to be very, very careful because there are people who would love to denounce you. It could be something as simple as um, a woman making dinner for her family using the recipes that she always had on a particular day would be interpreted as them practicing that high holiday and she would be arrested and executed. It's just very troublesome, obviously. And there's nothing we can say to make this any softer. It was a horrible, horrible thing. She seemed to feel like having a, you know, a society that was all one religion and one background was going to be easier to control and a better place to be. So that's her whole goal now is to slowly remove the other element from her country. All right. Well, now that we've handled the neighbors in Granada and now that we are handling our, and I am not joking about how she called it a vermin problem, Isabella assessed her position among the world powers, and it was time to join the big boys. And what year is it, kids? Say it with me. In 1492, he sailed the ocean blue. Who do I mean? Cristoforo Colombo. Or Cristobal Colon. Depending on who you talk to. We had a, there was a statue in New London, Connecticut that said Colombo on it. And when I was a kid, my brothers and I could never figure it out because we didn't have the internet. (laughs) Why would they write Colombo? Like the TV show? My husband and I were having a conversation about something in the front seat. And my son actually leaned forward, having turned his phone off. And he said, when you were kids and you wondered about something, how did you find the answer? And my husband and I just looked and were like, we just kept wondering. Yeah. Mostly. <laughs> That's right. If you still remembered by the time you got to your grandma's house, you could go get the encyclopedia out. And they were always outdated. And probably half the time, the things you were wondering about weren't even in there. Mm-hmm. Spelling a word, my mom would always say, look it up in the dictionary. And I'm like, if I could spell it, this wouldn't be an issue. My dad cannot use that because he would call me at college to ask me how to spell things for his newsletter that he was writing. Oh, my God. I love that. You were his spell check. His spell oh, chick. <laughs> oh, his spell chick. <laughs> I feel like I need a name tag. Well, old Cristobal Cologne had been irritatingly hanging about the court for years to back his scheme to sail around the world 
to the Indies and break the Turkish monopoly on spices. He had been an irritant. Ferdinand wouldn't even talk to him, by the way, because like he hated that guy. Learned men at court said it couldn't be done. And if it could be done, your majesty, that guy is not the man to do it. <laughs> um, and it wasn't just Isabella and Ferdinand. He was hitting up people all over. Anywhere he could get an audience, he was trying to sell this plan that he could go from the Canary Islands, which they established west, and in 30 days he'd be in Japan or in the Indies. Nobody was buying it. Portugal didn't buy it. Genoa didn't buy it. Venice didn't buy it. Isabella kind of said, hey, we're fighting this war right now. Can you come back later? <laughs> Columbus was a salesman first. So what he heard was, yes, you just need to keep bugging me. So he did for six years. He kept coming around trying to peddle this plan. So ultimately, after a series of negotiations called the Capitulation of Santa Fe, by the way, he uh, and Isabella made a deal that any land he discovered, he would be named Admiral Viceroy and governor of said lands and would be entitled to 10% of, quote, merchandise. What was meant by that are precious stones, gold, silver, spices, any other objects deemed of value or interest. He was entitled to 10%. And so she supplied him with two ships called the Nina and the Pinta. She supplied him with letters of introduction to all the rulers of Asia, which was very optimistic of her. Uh, and he set off with a crew of Castilian seamen and a couple of stray Portuguese and Italians. And a volunteer ship captain brought along his own ship called the Santa Maria, which was the biggest and nicest of all of them. Originally, it was called the La Galega, but Columbus himself renamed it the Santa Maria after, of course, the Virgin Mary. Now, I, apparently, that's a curse word to say La Galega. What does nowadays. it mean? Um, it's an offensive word, according to the Googles. Um, for and degrading. so she said it like four times. Just to let you know, she knew it was. I had never heard of it. She knew that it was a bad word and has been, now nah, do I have to bleep that or... It's an offensive word when you want to um, insult someone by race or gender or anything. Uh, apparently, I don't speak the language. All I know is that was the original name. It was back then. Here we go. I'm going to redeem myself. It was a language. Um, it was a dialect between Portuguese and um, Castilian. So that's okay. why it was named that. Yeah, <laughs> it wasn't a swear word back then. <laughs> Well, three terrifying months later, I don't know if you have seen these teeny tiny boats and how little they are. There is no way these boats were suitable for Atlantic travel. That's just what I'm saying. You could go to a yacht club these days and find boats that are bigger than these. The largest was only about 60 feet. That sounds large if you've never been in a 60 foot boat. So it's like not even three Suburbans long. Yeah. <laughs> You know, did you see that thing the other day? There was some kind of sinkhole and the news said it was the size of seven or eight washing machines. And the news were like, Americans will do anything to avoid the metric system, won't they? I saw that one. So I have no idea how many meters it is. Um, the end. Okay. <laughs> so three terrifying months later. They saw land after really having almost come to blows and, you know, everybody's in a bad mood, whatever. But there's a Caribbean island. Um, then no one's sure which one. And anyone who's been on vacation to a tropical climate from a wintry one can imagine their delight at A, land and B, this land. Wow. And the local people came to meet them on the beach. Naked people. What is happening? Columbus called them Gentle and peaceful people of great simplicity who, quote, 
could easily be subjugated and made to do all that one wished. Literally, he started out as a dirtbag with that mindset. <laughs> and they're just like, hey, welcome to our place. Why are you putting that flag of Spain in our sand? Because <laughs> Columbus claimed the land for Spain. Even though there's literally people um, living mm -hmm. there. Yep. That sets a pattern, doesn't it? Well, he gathered some gold and some trinkets and some plants and animals and stories. More importantly, he made enemies among his crew, for sure. And they ended up losing a ship, of course, the borrowed ship, the Santa Maria, and decided to take off and left 39 men behind on the island of Hispaniola, which is now um, shared by Haiti and the Dominican Republic in a settlement called La Navidad, which is Christmas because it was founded on Christmas. And I think their houses were built from the timber from the wrecked up Santa Maria. So Columbus returned in glory, first to Portugal, to gloat, I'd guess. Since the king there had refused to back him, he came triumphantly back to Spain, where he received a hero's welcome that was described like this. All of the court and the city came out to meet him, and the Catholic sovereigns received him in public, seated with all majesty and grandeur on rich thrones under a canopy of cloth of gold. When he came forward to kiss their hands, they rose from their thrones as if he were a great lord and would not let him kiss their hands, but made Made him sit down beside them. This was the moment he had been dreaming of as he was schlepping from one <laughs> royal palace to another trying to sell that plan. He kind of had this, I don't want to say it was a parade, but it was a parade going <laughs> from Portugal into Spain where anybody he could get to look at what he'd brought back, he got them out there. Prince Ali, yes, it is he, <laughs> Ali Ababa. And that parade that's coming in. Yes, exactly. <laughs> he got the monkeys. Hey, he got the monkeys. You know, he, he had the monkeys. <laughs> and he had parrots and turkeys. Uh, he had native masks and baskets, beads, tobacco, hammocks. And he had a small collection of what he called, quote, Indians. He had kidnapped up to 25 islanders. No one's sure on the exact number, but only seven of them survived the trip as slaves. And yes. Isabella was concerned for their lost souls in the new world. Um, she demanded that he send them back. I don't know that we've followed up to make sure how many of those seven made it back, but she's like, mm, no, 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 no. I'm constantly surprised that she has such concern. And she really does like in her spare time, she like vaguely worries about the lost souls over in the new world. She worries about them more than the actual African slaves that are in Spain. Mm -hmm. No one need be concerned. But what was it about the Native Americans, you know, that mm -hmm. engendered her vague concern? Can't answer that. But I do know that Isabel liked what she saw. She liked what Columbus had brought back, except for the slave part. So she funded another expedition for him. This time there were 17 ships, 1,500 men. They were all armed to the teeth. So now Columbus has weaponry. She had one directive. No slaves, Chris. Do not bring back any slaves. So she also wanted credit. And she got no less than her old frenemy, Rodrigo Borgia, who was now the Pope, to put into writing that the new lands Christopher Columbus, Cristobal Colon, had discovered, quote, discovered, <laughs> belonged to, quote, the ruler of Castile. Because Ferdinand had done exactly nothing and yet was starting to get most of the credit because of the old Ferdinand and Isabella on the paperwork. 
Um, maybe we even learned in school that, quote, Ferdinand and Isabella backed Christopher Columbus. That is just not the case. And it is in writing contemporaneously that that is not the case. It was Isabella that backed Christopher Columbus. Now, we can argue about if that's good or bad. So with these new expeditions and the ownership papers in hand, Spanish settlement in the New World grew exponentially. Some of the very first settlers were missionaries, and her ostensible goal for the whole entire endeavor was to convert all of the Indians, as they were called, to Christianity. You can see the effects of that drive all over the southwest of America and down through Central America, even today. Most will speak Spanish or have spoken Spanish historically, and um, many of the people who live there today are descendants of the Spanish explorers and settlers and local population. Although the explorers had been ordered to treat the Americans kindly, violence of all kinds was perpetuated on the people of the New World, sometimes unwittingly, as sailors brought to them diseases no one had immunities to. So that kind of happened in the background. But in general, the inhabitants, especially of the first islands that Columbus got to, were just treated harshly and poorly and rounded up and just broken. Mm-hmm. How much Isabella knew of that, I just don't know. She did replace Christopher Columbus as governor. On the last expedition that she had funded, she had him brought back in chains because she had gotten wind of what was going on over in the New World. Now, this was the third expedition, and it wasn't until this point that Columbus realized that he wasn't in Asia. <laughs> <laughs> I don't see these spices I'm looking for. Also, Isabella began to give the nod to other brave explorers to go with their own expeditions. She began to back other people and Columbus thought, wait, I'm the boss of all this. And she said, oh, you thought so. That's really cute. No, I'm the boss of all of this and you work for me and thus the chains and the slap down. So most of them were not that much better, but... There you go. The revenge of the Americans took a little while to really get going, but the gift of syphilis made its way back to Spain and began to spread all over Europe. Merry Christmas. (laughs) Isabella installed more capable and obedient overseers of her new lands, but Columbus did have one more gift to give before the final crackdown, the discovery of vast amounts of gold and silver in more of the interior of the continent that began to make its way to Spain. In fact, the gold began to flow back to such an extent that Isabella decided to show her piety and um, her obedience to Rome and to the Pope by donating the gold for the gilded ceiling of the Basilica of Santa Maria Maggiore in Rome, which is still there, um, paved with gold from the New World. So Isabella's initial sponsorship of Columbus had made her country the richest country in the world now. And the most powerful, a place they would hold for centuries. There was a high cost paid here in the Americas for it. We should not forget. (laughs) 
Your results may vary, but about a third of our life is spent in our sheets. Isn't it important for them to be insanely comfortable? I think so. Brooke Linen thinks so. And Brooke Linen has over 40,000 five-star reviews to back that up. I've been sleeping on Brooke Linen sheets for a while. My elder son went off to college. That next day, I went to make my bed and I couldn't find my top sheet. Oh my gosh, my kid took my Brooke Linen sheet. I was so mad. A few days later, my daughter went off to college. And as she was stripping her bed, she said, oops, mom, look what I have. She took my Brooklyn sheets. So I guess I'm giving Brooklyn and sheets to my kids this Christmas. It's in their name. So you know it's good, right? Brooklinen's newest linen collection is amazing. Brooklinen is giving our listeners an exclusive offer. Get 10% off and free shipping when you use promo code CHICKS at brooklinen.com. Brooklinen is so confident in their product that all their sheets, comforters, and towels come with a lifetime warranty. The only way to get 10% off and free shipping is to use promo code CHICKS at brooklinen.com. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com. Promo code CHICKS. We'll have a link in our show notes. Brooklinen, these are the best sheets ever. Okay, so Isabella is raking in the gold and raking in the wealth. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Objections were raised by the old enemy, Portugal, who, according to the treaty that they had made with Portugal, got all this seafaring capability. Portugal's like, wait, I thought we were supposed to have dominion over the high seas. We already have Africa. That's mine. I demand equal representation in the new world of exploration. And so Isabella and her old enemy, King, it's Jao, but King John is how you're going to read it, of Portugal, asked the Pope to rule on who had dibs on all these new lands once and for all. And one amazing thing was that the Pope just drew a line. North is for Isabella, south is for Portugal. Why does Brazil speak Portuguese? Because Aborgia said it was to be so. I'm serious. <laughs> no, I know you are. And that's the other thing that amazes me. The Pope, this one man, just cut up the world like a mom cutting a cupcake in half. And people were like, dang it. Okay. And they just <laughs> accepted it. Accepted it. Yeah. So the Spanish Inquisition is still ticking along in the background, lest we forget. And now the age of exploration and European settlement takeover are also happening in the background. So those things from now on are proceeding without our involvement on the podcast. She is such a long game player. You know, like the Inquisition takes forever and the wars, they take forever. There's so many things that are going on at the same time for the long haul. And now another sort of chess game we're going to start playing. Speaking of long games, Queen Isabella had five pawns that she <laughs> gave birth to. <clears throat> yes. You applaud in your transition. That's so awesome. So she's about to put them onto the chessboard of life. Um, these things do kind of overlap other things, by the way, but it doesn't make any sense for us to intersperse them where they go. So let's just put all the family stuff together here in one big scenario. And the first to be put into play, of course, was the eldest daughter, Princess Isabella, who married the heir to the Portuguese throne, Portugal. That grumpy neighbor who stole the other half of the world five minutes ago, Isabella wouldn't even say the name of the king anymore. She just called King John of Portugal that man. <laughs> he was a bad guy, by the way. Um, 
Those unlucky Spanish Jews that had taken refuge in Portugal soon learned to regret their choice because they had to pay really high taxes to come in. And if they ever wanted to leave, there was this giant exit fee that could hardly even be obtained. And when they couldn't pay the taxes... I don't even know if I want to tell what you what he did. <laughs> he enslaved them. He took a thousand Jewish children away from their parents because of non-payment of taxes, took them on a boat across the ocean to Cabo Verde Island, which is off the coast of North Africa, made them get off and drove away. Yep. The end. Yep. They they died. So he's a bad, bad man. Here you go, Isabella. This is your uh Here's your father-in-law. Welcome. She had a job to do. She had to be a diplomatic envoy to basically a historic adversary, if not outright enemy. But the heir, another Afonso, we cannot bear it, has, <laughs> he's a different matter. He He's only 15. Uh, she's 20. And Isabella got along great with him because they had known each other before. Back when the war in Portugal had ended, part of the treaty was this marriage. But as they were 10 and 5 years old at the time, Princess Isabella was sort of a hostage to ensure peace between the countries. And she had lived there for three years. She spoke Portuguese. She was a big hit with the people of Portugal. And the court loved her. They remembered her. And after her marriage, she and Alfonso were truly and for real in love. And I have to say, Isabella tried... Big Isabella, Queen Isabella, <laughs> <laughs> Big Edie, Little Edie. Um, she tried as best she could to at least give her children the best shot of what she knew about these people. She tried to get people around the same age. Unlike her, you know, like she had been betrothed as a child to someone who was 40 years older than she. She at least gave it a good try. And this might have been a good match. You know, she knew that they liked each other. And so it seemed to work great. And her daughter was truly happy. Except only about a year into the marriage, Afonso died from a horseback riding accident. She's finally in a good place. And now her husband is dead. So Princess Isabella was inconsolable. She cut her hair off. She stopped eating. She stopped bathing. Not as big of a deal there as you would think. <laughs> uh, full spiral, though. Full spiral. Her father-in-law, the scary King John, was so afraid for her mental state that he had her bed moved in to his room, not for nefarious purposes, but for literally a suicide watch. And Princess Isabella kept saying out loud, what did I do to displease God? What have I done? What have I done? Her parents finally convinced her to come home to Spain. So Princess Isabella returned to Castile. She kind of shut herself in her rooms. She didn't talk much. She prayed a lot. Whenever there was a mention of another marriage, she shut down. Nope, not going to do it. Not going to do it. When her old father-in-law died over there in Portugal, the new king, her husband's uncle, was right on the phone asking Princess Isabella, Isabella, come back to Portugal and be my queen. I'm never going to marry again. Never. Queen Isabella said, how about Maria? She's a lovely girl. No, never Maria. Who's even Maria? No, no, only <laughs> Isabella. We have our work cut out for us, thought Isabella. So in quick succession, children two and three were married. Juan and Juana married a pair of siblings, Philip the Handsome, an Archduke of Habsburg, and his sister, Margaret of Austria. A double bond with the Holy Roman Empire, which is Austrian-German powerhouses. This is, you know, Marie Antoinette's people later. Marie Antoinette's own father was Holy Roman Emperor Francis I. 
You need to nail that big alliance down with two pawns, I think. Yeah. One was their heir. So that's a big pawn. Correct. And so there's the double bond there. And I would like to do an episode about Juana, actually. So I don't know that we should go too far into her right now, but history knows her as Juana the Mad. Mm. And there's controversy over whether she was in fact mentally ill or a pawn in her male relatives games, her husband, her father and her son. Amen. You know, so for now, Juana. Oh, my goodness. Juana. <laughs> the conversation over was Juana mad or was Juana mad? We'll have to wait till another episode. I know. Poor Juana. I just think what Juana wanted was like a very nice upper class life with embroidery and six children and um, nothing. That's what she wanted. That is not what she got. So more on another episode on her. But Juan and his wife, Margaret, got along great, which is another good choice. I guess she fitted in well with the family. Everyone really liked her. And that's probably not always the case. So Princess Isabella's parents had finally persuaded her to do her duty and remarry. The alliance with Portugal. Portugal is muy importante. She had to go back to Portugal to marry Manuel of Portugal, but Princess Isabella had a condition that the Portuguese expelled their Jews before she got there because she had come to the conclusion that her late husband died because Portugal allowed heresy to flourish in its borders. And he did as she wished. I am so sorry to tell you about this latest wrinkle. People will never stop hitting bottom, as far as I'm concerned. He allowed the Jews to leave, and I think he lowered the exit tax on their leaving. However, anyone who chose to leave had to leave any children they had under 14 had to be left behind to be raised by Christian families. So they could leave, but they couldn't take their children. Mm -mm. Okay, so then we embark upon a series of tragedies. Tragedy number one, Queen Isabella's only son, Juan, the heir, died. He's the heir to both Aragon and Castile. The mourning for Prince Juan was complete and nearly universal across Spain. Even all the tradesmen went into mourning. All shops were shut for 40 days. All of the animals, like the draft mules and things, were covered in black cloth. Black banners were hung on all the gates of all cities within the realm of Spain. There was a teeny tiny little silver lining in that Margaret at the time was pregnant. Maybe there would be an heir to be born into the family. Unfortunately, that baby was stillborn. And it was a daughter. Um, the only light in Spain has been extinguished, said Isabella. So let's sure. call that tragedy number two. So evidently, Princess Isabella was now the heir to Castile as the oldest daughter and Aragon too, though that part of Ferdinand and Isabella's dominions was not that happy with a woman boss or her Portuguese king husband bossing them around. See, Castile's used to it. Castile's like, okay, another Isabella. Fair enough. You know, <laughs> they've been worn down. But Aragon was still like, nah, 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 nah. Luckily, Princess Isabella was pregnant. And so if she had a son, everyone is going to calm down. So no one's freaking out. Everyone is fine waiting for this to happen. Well, she did have a son named Miguel. Miguel de la Paz. Miguel, bringer of peace, heir to Portugal, Castile, and Aragon. Hooray! But tragedy three? Isabella died within an hour of giving birth. And tragedy four? The baby only lived less than two years. So who's the heir now? We're back down to Juana, the third of Isabella's children, who had just had a son. So, okay, Aragon was calm. 
(laughs) (laughs) All right. Right after this, King Manuel of Portugal, looking around, finding himself bereft of a wife, finally agreed to marry Isabella's fourth child, Maria. Interconnected and gross. Wait till you hear who he marries next, by the way. Should I just tell you? We're never going to tell him again. (laughs) Yeah, just, yeah, get it out there. Okay, so after Maria dies, spoiler alert, we're not there yet. He marries Isabella's grandchild. (laughs) One of the Mads' youngest daughter. Whose name was what? Eleanor. Oh. Or Leonor is what they would call her in Yeah. Yeah. Widow of your nephew, her sister, and their niece. Like, who cares? Papal dispensations, dime a dozen, stamp them out. Yeah. Well, anyway, Maria's uh, wedding was happy and fruitful. He should have listened to Queen Isabella a long time ago. They actually had eight children who lived to adulthood. And evidently, Maria was loved and cherished at last after being forgotten and middle-childed for so long. So Isabella, Queen Isabella's attempts to get her children into good marriages, you know, (laughs) I don't know. She's kind of batting, I don't know. <laughs> I've lost I lost count, but this one wasn't too bad. No, she, no, no. It's what she wanted first, so this was a good marriage. So that leaves one last unmarried daughter in the house, Catalina. Now, since about the age of three, she had been called the Princess of Wales because she, since the age of three, had been promised to the heir of the throne of England. Um, she's 15 now, and she was married to the heir. Arthur, two years ago when she was 13. Um, They had kept her back, though, because England is a little rickety. Henry VII had taken his crown by force. He didn't really have a lot of security, and they were kind of waiting around to see what was going to happen there. Also, he was super demanding. He wanted all this money. He wanted all these concessions. And Isabel's like, look, you, you, (laughs) you upstart you. I mean, I like you. You're a nice boy. And your island would be a very good ally in our war with France and everything. But you need to step off of your high horse a little. But she said it more diplomatically than that. (laughs) Technically, if you want to get right down to it, Catherine, Catalina, had a stronger blood claim to the throne of England than Henry VII did. Oh, it's so tangled. But Catalina was descended from the first wife of John of Gaunt, and Henry VII was descended from the third wife of John of Gaunt, and her children were illegitimate when they were born. So, oh ho, England really kind of needed this circle back to give a little bolster to their claim of legitimacy for the throne at all. Is that a part you knew? Anyway, I don't know how to put all that or if I shouldn't put it in. (laughs) You know what? I think it's good to leave it in because it's kind of confusing, but it is confusing. Like there's all these little branches and twines and twists in this family. And there's no way to spell it out like in a nice linear form. (laughs) So here is another little wrinkle. Um, Lurking around in the ether of England were a couple of gentlemen who were problematic for the security of their daughter Catalina and any future children she would have in the line of succession. There was a pretender out and about called Perkin Orbeck that was causing enough controversy that ultimately he was executed. Now, some people will say Ferdinand and Isabella demanded that he be executed as people were accepting his position as a possible heir to the throne. So Perkin Warbeck, who pretended to be one of the princes in the tower or was one of the princes in the tower, we'll never know, um, was executed. That removed one of the guys. And then another man, the last Plantagenet heir, 
the Earl of Warwick, Edward, poor Edward, who had been imprisoned because of his name since he was a very small child and had never been let out, was still in jail. I do believe that Isabella and Ferdinand demanded that he be executed before they would send Catherine over. And so he was killed for nothing more than having his name, you know? Mm. never having lived at all. So here comes Catalina over to England. We have covered some of this in episode 22. If you want to go way back and get all the details, but here's a loud car. That's tragedy number (laughs) (laughs) 4.5. Are you keeping track of them? (laughs) Yes, because tragedy number five, actual number five, is that Catalina's young husband, Arthur, with whom she was in love, by all appearances, died suddenly of an illness that they had both suffered and only Catalina had made it through. Catalina, Catherine of Aragon, was stuck in England with a recently widowed father-in-law, Henry VII, who decided he wanted to marry her. No way, said Queen Isabella. Gross. Who's ever heard of that? Where do you draw the line? Seriously, where do you draw the line? (laughs) Is that where? That's where you draw the line? Fathers-in-law? Okay. Well, he was older. She's doing a pretty good job of keeping the spouses to her children about the same age. Oh, so it wasn't the relationship she was worried about. It was the decades? Maybe. Well, and then she knew that Catherine would be in the same situation because her husband was going to die at some point. I mean, he's living on borrowed time. I guess so. But Isabella insisted, you will marry her to your younger son, Henry, or you will send her home. And money issues and pride issues kept coming up. We talked about this before, but Catherine has to live in poverty, basically in a strange country, while her husband's father and her own have a pissing contest is fundamentally what it is. So I went into some moving boxes that I have not opened since four houses ago. And there, what to my wondering eyes should appear, some VHS tapes with my city grandma's scrawly writing on them. Beckett and Christopher's wedding. Okay, so somewhere on that little brown piece of tape is me in my 1920s beaded vintage wedding dress. My husband with his ponytail, but um, I don't have a VHS player. And what are you going to do with it? So you hold it in your hand, this tape, and you think, I'm going to have to just throw it away. The solution has come. It's Legacy Box. You can send in old media like that. We all have a box of VHS tapes. What you want to do is unlock all those memories and make them live again. You can show your children your youth. Children that don't even understand about Be Kind Rewind. You send your old media in and they put it in a format you can actually use in your modern house. And you know what? Our son Jet would like to laugh at us, but we are undeniably cool. And here's the proof. There's never been a better time to digitally preserve your memories. Visit LegacyBox.com today to get started. Plus, for a limited time, they're offering our listeners an exclusive discount. Go to LegacyBox.com chicks to receive 40% off your first order. Go to LegacyBox.com chicks to save 40% today and get started preserving your past.
So while Catalina is over in England having, I guess, mid-marital troubles, (laughs) (laughs) um, one of her sisters is fully into some marital trouble of her own. Juana, she's up in Burgundy, married to Philip the Handsome. It was a relationship that started off okay. He thought she was pretty. She thought he was handsome. Of course, it's in his name. Um, (laughs) But he didn't think she was pretty enough. He thought his bevy of women were prettier. So he was out and about. And Juana was left at home to get jealous and have babies. And when they fought, it was violent. But after the death of her brother Juan and her sister Isabella, suddenly Juana was the heir to the throne of Castile and Aragon. Isabella, the queen, needed her daughter to come back home to be officially announced as the heir. Her husband, Philip the Wanderer, is what I'm calling him right now. (laughs) Can we get Mm -hmm. that changed in the history books? Philip Mm -hmm. the Wanderer? Mm -hmm. He wasn't so keen on it. He was never a big fan of Spain to begin with. He didn't really want to partake in this until he realized that he could call himself the Prince of Asturias, which was the name that the heir to the throne of Castile took. He's calling himself the heir to Castile when it's really his wife. Eventually, they get down to Spain. Juana was pregnant again. They had a huge fight. Philip took off for his bro friends in France, leaving Juana there. Isabella set Juana up in lush accommodations, but in essence, she was kind of holding her captive. She didn't want her to go while she was pregnant. She didn't want to risk the life of the future heir, of course. So she's keeping Juana there as long as possible. Juana wasn't thrilled about it. Eventually, Queen Isabella did let Juana go back to Philip, But Queen Isabella kept the baby who was named Ferdinand for safekeeping, and he was going to be raised in Castile. Juana left. And here's this. We forgot to mention all of Juana's older children were actually raised by Margaret, her brother's widow, Margaret of Austria, who everyone liked. And, mm-hmm. and she did a great job, I will say, of all the royal parents we have ever kind of come across. Margaret of Austria was a stand-up lady and did a good job. She took her task very seriously and personally. So if they had to be taken away from their own mother and raised in some other household, they could have been in many worse places. But let's just say there might be a reason Juana is slowly losing her faculties because people keep taking her children away from her. Okay, so while this whole decade of marriages, funerals, babies, stealing of, farming out, etc. were happening, the forces of Spain were clashing with the powerhouse of France for control of Italy. Because pieces of vacuum that must be filled with blood, evidently. (laughs) Uh, I mean, you know, we're not that into battles and war. And this is like the background that Susan and I have been dragged into kicking and screaming. So obviously we are not going to get into the details of that fight, but Isabella was all in again, despite the personal dramas that she had to deal with. She was quartermastering, she was strategizing, um, she was maintaining persuasive correspondences all over Europe, holding powerful people's feet to the fire, keeping a list, (laughs) an enemy's list and a favors list, calling those favors in. Though by now, I have to say, she was all done with the Pope and his corruption. She was all done and she would only speak to another one of that man with uh, third parties. <laughs> Pope Alexander VI really kind of clashed with who Isabella was. Everything that she believed in 
he didn't do. I mean, he was ruthless. He was a murderer. He was overly personally ambitious. He had so many illegitimate children, which would suggest a lot of sexual immorality. She couldn't take it anymore, even though he had been on her side a number of times. She was done. The year Prince Arthur died, Isabella and Ferdinand decided that all Muslims remaining in Spain were ordered to convert to Christianity or to leave the country. And this affected over half a million people. Also, the fee to leave was so high as to be nearly impossible for the average person to pay. So the goal was mass conversion. And what this led to was a widespread practice of pretending to have converted and maintaining Muslim practices in secret. Now, the Muslims were more successful than the conversos for almost 100 years because the heads of their church decided to go ahead and put out a set of rules for everyone to follow. Organized subterfuge. How to act when you're expected to eat pork. How to act when you're expected to drink wine. We hereby absolve you because this is not what's in your heart. It's just a survival mechanism. God will understand that you're doing this under duress. You know, they they kind of laid out the program because the Inquisition was now focused on you, brethren. You know, here's how to survive, to fight another day. We just have to be realistic. So that's going on. That same year, Isabella's health began to decline. She had been slowing down, although still quartermastering these armies and still fighting the Pope. She slowed down and she developed frequent fevers. She developed dropsy, which is nothing like it sounds. It's edema and swelling. You hear that a lot, dropsy. It's Mm -hmm, swelling. mm -hmm. It's really slowing her down. I always think dropsy is (laughs) diarrhea, but I know it's not. I, I always think of it as fainting. Oh, like the vapors. <laughs> See, here you are. We're collapsing onto a chaise long and I'm like pooping. <laughs> it's my vision of dropsy. And then in reality, it's just like swollen everything. <laughs> well, after many years, many years of pushed through ill health on her part and two following years of absolutely acute unimaginable pain and struggle, the end seemed to be approaching. Spain as a whole was full of terror about it. Isabella was the only thing keeping Spain from going back to the old days of chaos, which I must admit is a luxury view because she's the cause of chaos for (laughs) a lot of her population and anyone who wasn't happy to be middle of the road. I'm just saying the chaos is coming from inside the house, friends. But for the average citizen who towed the line, Isabella was the only thing standing between them and mayhem. Doesn't that seem, I mean, that is a luxury view, right? Yeah. Because the mayhem has already happened to millions of people. Well, from her bed of sickness, she was at last able to twist some arms in Rome, some third parties. As you know, she's not talking to the Pope right now. And she got a papal dispensation for Catalina to marry the man who would become King Henry VIII. We've talked about many times as wanting to go back in time and tase in the PP and get back in her time machine and come back. We don't like him. (laughs) (laughs) Although at this point in the story, we're happy that Catalina has a husband that's young and who's the heir and she seems quite fond of. Yes. As far as Queen Isabella was concerned, this is an excellent match. There's so much in love. Catalina is settled for life. We know differently, but Isabella did not and never did. And that dispensation seemed to be what 
Isabella was waiting for to die. She received last rites. She made Ferdinand promise not to marry again because it would just complicate the succession. She's always planning, even at the last. Uh, he did promise in front of witnesses to never marry again. You know how promises are. They're written on toilet paper. <laughs> and on November 26th, 1504, Isabella died in her bed and Ferdinand and her own best friend, Beatrice, was by her side. She was 53 years old. Isabella was buried in the Franciscan Monastery at Alhambra in Granada. She had ruled for 30 years and had been married to Ferdinand for 35. So Isabella seemed to have been mourned as, quote, one of the greatest rulers of Europe in recent memory. I would like to quote this. This is what people who were in a privileged position to see her from the Christian perspective thought of her. There has not been in our time anywhere on earth a more shining example of true goodness, of greatness of spirit, of prudence, of piety, of chastity, of courtesy, of liberality, of every virtue than Queen Isabella. And although the fame of that lady is very great everywhere among all nations, those who lived in her company and who personally witnessed her actions all affirm that this fame sprang from her virtue and her merits. And then also, people were kind of concerning his that maybe she was still watching them which is interesting <laughs> there arose among the people a very great veneration for her comprised of love and fear so fixed in the minds of all it seems they expect her to be watching them from heaven and think she might blame or praise them from up there and so, those realms of heaven are still governed by her fame and the methods instituted by her, so that although her life is ended, her authority lives on like a wheel which, when spun a long while by force, continues to turn by itself for a good space, even though no one impels it anymore. Oh, what is that from? It is from a book called The Book of the Courtier by an Italian named Castiglione, which I maybe not say correctly. <laughs> So her contemporaries seemed to think that she was awesome. And in her will, she left her succession, left her kingdom to Princess Juana. If, however, Princess Juana found herself for any reason unable to govern, she in her will said that Ferdinand was to act as regent until Juana's son was 20 years of age. She specifically left Philip the Handsome out of any claim to the throne to Castile that he had already assumed the mantle of. Mm -hmm. uh, she added a codicil to her will shortly before she died, instructing Ferdinand and Juana to treat the Indians of the New World fairly. And not persecute them, which, of course, psh, failed. Too late. That ship has sailed, I'm afraid, <laughs> Isabella. And you sent the ship there in the first place. That's right. So only a week after Isabella's death, Ferdinand was a bull in a china shop. She left him her jewels specifically, and I quote, so that he would think well of me and fondly as he laid eyes upon them. He could not wait to sell that crap off and melted them down for the gold, frankly. So much for the fond memories. And Ferdinand put out feelers to marry, hold on to your seats, Juana Beltranea. Yes, <laughs> I'm not joking. And everybody's like, um, she's been in a convent for years, but she went there reluctantly. Surely she'd want to come out and be a queen. She'd been the rightful heir all along, says Ferdinand. And all this, you know, reign of Queen Isabella was just a mistake. <laughs> so what if all these children of mine were not in the line of succession after all? Uh, seriously? 
Okay. On the other hand, Philip was insistent that Juana was the heir and that he was going to rule in her stead. Philip and Ferdinand were already fighting about who was the rightful heir. So if Ferdinand eliminates the Juana factor by marrying his step-sister-in-law from the convent, then, you know, it was a clear path for him to sit on the throne. Okay, so everybody is flat out gnaw in a W <laughs> to that Juana Beltranea thing. We are not going down that path. No, not revisiting history. And so Ferdinand would have to rolled his mustache and he had one and thought, oh, okay, how about this? He went so far as to marry an 18-year-old French princess, quote, to produce a male heir for Aragon. Now, here's Isabella from the grave. I warned you about complicating the succession. If this young, young wife of his had a son, that son, that baby would take precedence over Juana, over Catalina, over Maria, out of, out of everybody. If it was a boy, he has just upset the balance of power in Europe. And he was all about it. And, and people of Spain's Yelp review of Ferdinand was like, one star, would not hire again. <laughs> he was not the beloved of the two. Ferdinand and Isabella, I can tell you right now. And Ferdinand and Philip were like angry seagulls trying to steal the sandwich of Castile from poor little Juana. You know, like she's just trying to hold on to the sandwich <laughs> and they keep attacking her. And that's about the level of control she had, too, is like a three year old trying to, you know, run away and they would be after her. Well, Philip and Juana came into Castile as welcome replacements for Ferdinand. I have to say, in the popular press. And then suddenly something happened. Philip himself suddenly died, probably from typhoid. Although, <laughs> what happened to the popular press again? He's 28. He was perfectly healthy five minutes ago. Ferdinand does has a, have a history of poison. That's true. And they looked at the pattern and they made their decision. And we are going to talk more in detail about this if we cover Juana. But let's just say that she had been convinced that she was unfit to rule by the male members of her family. And Ferdinand ended up taking over. Juana's son, Charles, was the new king of Spain. So Ferdinand took over because Juana's son was still a small child. And that had been in Isabella's will. If Juana finds herself unable, you are the regent until her son reaches 20 years of age. And he eliminated Philip or nature eliminated Philip. Somebody did. <laughs> and left the path clear for him to take his, quote, rightful place as the regent, as Isabella did intend. And to make it even easier, he took care of the threat that Juana or people working on Juana's behalf would have, and he locked her up in a convent for the rest of her life. Oh, Ferdinand. We know like Ferdinand. I mean, I like Ferdinand the bull. That's a fine book, but this Ferdinand <laughs> is bull. Oh! <gasps> I'm just saying, there you go. Um, so he died 12 years after this scenario, generally unmourned, and was laid to rest beside his wife, Isabella, in her grand tomb, even though she had specified she wanted a flat piece of stone and no fufara, and she wanted her daughter brought to lie beside her. And both of those things didn't happen. By the time Ferdinand came to join her, she had a grand tomb, and Isabella, the daughter, was never moved. So those last wishes were not followed. History has been putting Ferdinand first, but the contemporaries knew the score. Although, you know, um, future historians, Ferdinand and Isabella did up, 
people of the time were pretty much saying flat out he achieved any fame he achieved because he was married to Isabella. And, you know, she hauled an anchor, basically. Yeah. All the way through her, her reign. Well, um, fast forward. How about way fast forward? In 1958, the Catholic Church began the process to canonize Isabella due to her, quote, reputation of sanctity. And I am sincere in my warnings that they are going to have to take into account her atrocities to those not of the Christian faith. And maybe they will and maybe they won't. But people look at that a lot differently than they might have in 1958 these days, as they should. As they should. In 1958, they thought Christopher Columbus was a stand-up guy, a brave explorer. And now his holiday, Columbus Day, is being reclaimed as Indigenous Peoples Day. And I think that's a fine thing. I agree. And also, how about this for a legacy? We've got chess. We've got our existence in America, you know, at all. We have some dark legacies as to the political composition, as to the composition of the people of Spain and their heritage. But we also have uh, the royal houses of, brace yourself for this, I'm going to try to do this in one breath, Spain, Monaco, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, the Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg, and the United Kingdom. Those royal families are all descendants of Isabella of Castile. Queen Elizabeth II actually is the 17th great-granddaughter of Queen Isabella. Impressive. I did not do those calculations. <laughs> I found I was them online. <laughs> no, no, let me pretend you did. <laughs> So what would that be then? Charlotte would be the 19th? 19th. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Well, there you go. So what else do you have in regard to legacies? I'm sure Uh, there's a postage stamp. (laughs) She has not been on Drunk History as far as I can find. I couldn't find it either. I was very disappointed in that. Here's an interesting personal legacy. In 1992, there was a cruising yacht rally that retraced Columbus's voyage from Spain to the Americas. It had uh, many ships in it, but every state in the United States had an official boat. Hmm. And my father's boat was the official boat from Connecticut. Really? Yes, I'm actually wearing my crew t-shirt right now. Well, see, that's why I didn't understand. Okay, (laughs) listeners, she sent me this picture. She's like, hey, does this give me street cred? And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) And it was like a white polo shirt with embroidery on it. And I was like, I don't understand the clue. (laughs) I know. And what did I say? I said, I'll explain it later. (laughs) Yep, that's what my shirt says. Now you said something about, does this give me hoo-ha? And I'm like, I don't really know what who I is. And I don't think so. I think what I was thinking was like, you know how when I say something and you're like, wait, what? You wrote a penny farthing? Oh, I thought it was going to be one of those situations. (laughs) I was actually supposed to go with my dad. I was supposed to be the uh, cook for this trip. And I had to back out, which I don't have a lot of regrets in life, but that's one of them. Mm-hmm. I just gotten married. I just started a new job in a new city. And I just was trying to be the grown up and not leave the country for three months. Susan from here is like, damn it, you idiot. Right. <laughs> all, all I have is a couple of crew t-shirts. <laughs> but yeah. So that was cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So should we just go into media right now? Since we're- we should just go into media. 
Okay, so as to biographies, there's a couple that I like. Uh, Isabella the Warrior Queen by Kirsten Downey. I really like, except for I don't like it because I've had it so long that it is now mine. <laughs> I'm like going, why didn't you like it? I love that one. I thought it read kind of like a novel. And it cost me $52. Oh my gosh, really? Well, also, unfortunately, I left it on the porch and it got rained on, so it would have been mine anyway, and then I forgot about Oh, So anyway, there's that book. I love the inside of it, and I am grumpy about its circumstances, so it's a good read. <laughs> also, there's Isabella of Castile, Europe's First Great Queen by Giles Tremlett, and Isabella of Castile, The First Renaissance Queen by Nancy Rubin Stewart. I had those. Uh, you know, there's a Library of Congress YouTube video of uh, Kirsten Downey giving a talk about Isabella. I'll link you up in the show notes, but I thought it was kind of interesting. Uh, as for kids books, there's The Thinking Girl's Treasury of Real Princesses, Isabella of Castile by Sharon Yim Bridges, illustrated by Albert Guyon. Uh, it is a series we had recommended had ships it in the series. The book has a lot of photographs of areas, a lot of detail, but it's written for kids. So I did like this series a great deal. So I'm assuming it didn't go into the expulsion of the Jews from Spain and the purging <laughs> no, it, of the mm, Muslims from Spain and the... Mm, Mm -mm. Spanish Inquisition and the slaying of... I, it touched on them. <laughs> it touched on some of those things, but not... No, it was. it's a kid's book. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, and then I went down a rabbit hole that uh, was, I think, necessary for me to be on the right wavelength or whatever. But I read a book called Blood and Faith, The Purging of Muslim Spain, 1492 to 1614. We didn't really cover this... But about 100 years after Isabella departed this earth, the Muslims in Spain experienced even greater um, retribution. That's all I'm going to say about that. She set it in motion with the whole forced conversion thing, and they were able to operate for a while with great bravery and subterfuge, but it all came back on them quite hard. That's written by Matthew Carr. If that is something you feel like you want to explore, uh, you know, <laughs> and it's not everyone who wants to dig into that. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. If you want to go light on it, I'll link you up to an article that's basically why Muslims see the Crusades differently than Christians. And it's a discussion by some um, Muslim men talking about how they historically look at the Crusades. Oh, that's good. And then, yeah. you know, speaking of articles, I have an article from the Jewish Virtual Library about the expulsion of Jews from Spain. And that talks about the original one that we talked about that happened in 1492. And then speaking of 1492, an article on biography.com about, quote, the real Christopher Columbus is necessary reading, I think, for all of us who grew up singing that song and think of him as a stand-up guy and that kind of thing. I almost think there are some, quote, heroes that probably should be knocked off their pedestal. And he's one of those guys. I am pretty comfortable saying that. I am going to agree with you. Um, and I will link you to a piece in The Oatmeal by Matt Eman, who thinks that Columbus Day should instead be Bartolome de la Casas Day. It's actually a comic. It came out a few years ago, and I think it was the first time a lot of people had their eyes opened about what a dirtbag Christopher Columbus was. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's easier to read than a book. <laughs> Yeah, I have to say, if the architect of the Spanish Inquisition thinks you're too harsh and a bad guy, yeah. 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 So anyway, there's that. And then also, how about this from NPR? There is a painting in the Vatican that was commissioned by Isabella's, quote, favorite pope, Borgia, called The Resurrection by Pinturicchio. 
1494, only two years after Columbus went the first time. And it is supposedly the first representation in the Western world of Native Americans. Hmm. I don't know that we mentioned it, but Isabella was a big patron of the arts and a big supporter of education and philosophers and, and thinkers. So that was a good thing on her legacy, I suppose. Oh, and I do believe she appointed two female professors to one of the universities. There you go. Although, I'm um, sorry, that is not enough. To- no combat what else happened. But anyway, so um, we'll link you to a uh, article about that painting, which they didn't fully know. It was so dirty, you know, paintings over the years, the varnish browns and etc. And it was during the restoration process that people are like, wait, what? who are these guys? And they looked into the history of the painting a little bit. I thought that was kind of amazing. Also, there is a uh, letter from Perkin Warbeck, the pretender to the throne, the person who said he was one of the princes in the tower, a letter directly to Isabella of Castile herself that did not save him from his ultimate fate. But there it is. Podcast, you had talked about the ties of history. We'll link you up to those episodes in the show notes. There is a new podcast called History Uncensored. It's really new. There's only like seven episodes. So the guy's still kind of finding his footing as far as delivery goes. And there's a lot of cussing. But as far as content goes and um, the way he presents it, aside from the cussing, he had a really good two-parter on Columbus. Uh, Yeah, the podcaster's name is Seth Michaels. So we'll hook you up with that. This is related like by a couple different steps, but the Renaissance English History Podcast is having a TudorCon in Pennsylvania. It's at a winery, which sounds awesome. It's in October of 2019. Uh, It's next to the Pennsylvania Ren Fest. There's going to be authors, music, a musical, a feast. We'll link you in the show notes as well as a discount coupon to get to it. It sounds really ambitious, but if anybody can pull this off, it's Heather Tysko, who's been doing the Renaissance English History Podcast forever. So that sounds pretty cool. That does sound cool. Now, if I cannot find an English language series exactly about Isabella, but there is a series in Spanish called Isabel la Católica. I don't Mm -hmm. know how to say that in Spanish. Isabella the Catholic. It's a TV series that ran for three years and um, was quite popular. It is basically there, the Tudors. It was a historical fiction made stars out of the people that started on that show. (laughs) As soon as I can get kind of, I mean, you can get pieces of it on YouTube. I just don't know if there's any legitimate outlet that you can watch it um, Mm -hmm. with or without subtitles. So we'll do a little more digging on that. As to something in the English language, there's the Spanish princess on stars, but there are so many historical inaccuracies in that show. I know. That I don't necessarily not recommend it as a, as a, show as an entertainment, but I don't want things like to get in to your head. Mm-hmm. Like Henry was a little kid when she got there. You know what I mean? She's not like writing a porno to Henry or something. What I don't even know what that was that I saw. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of racy um, as entertainment, kind of like the Tudors was. Yeah. So, it's you know, great much on, Yes, definitely. Although it is loosely based on uh, two Philippa Gregory books. I understand. I didn't watch these other two that it's not as good as The White Queen and The White Princess. Uh, 
but um, I I enjoyed it, I guess, as entertainment goes. If you're on Amazon Prime already looking at that through the stars, Dan Snow of the BBC has a series called Battle Castle. Now, we're not usually about the wars, of course, but in this, he visits castles with a military history. And in episode six, he visited Malaga, which was the Muslim fortress on the Mediterranean that was the last to fall to Isabella. So you can actually go to it. You can see what it looks like now which is always exciting for me. And speaking of things existing now, my husband just got back from the Dominican Republic, which is on the island of Hispaniola, where Columbus landed. And um, he accidentally took pictures at a place that turns out to be the second settlement Columbus ever made after Navidad, and it's called La Isabella. And it is considered by the people of the Dominican Republic to be one of the most haunted places on the island because so many atrocities happened in or around there. And the buildings were torn down a long time ago, and it is part of a national park now. And so I I can give you some pictures of the accidental discovery, again, of La Isabella by my husband. It was very interesting. I love that it was an accidental discovery. Was yeah, like on a motorcycle trip with his buddies? He was driving around the island with his buddies on a motorcycle eating random food that they (laughs) got from strangers with buckets of oysters and that kind of thing. It was his dream trip, and he just went everywhere. It was great. He loved it. And that will do it for our coverage of Isabella of Castile. I have a headache. (laughs) (laughs) I have a stomach ache. So... You know, we are usually on the side of our subjects, aren't we? We try to see things from their point of view. And to a certain extent, as far as we could, she really believed she was doing good. She really believed that whatever happened on Earth was secondary to what might happen to them in the afterlife. And her whole goal was to get people safely under the umbrella of Christianity. And I guess from that perspective, she thought she was doing everyone a favor. But it just really turned out to make people pretty wretched, all over the world for a long period of time. I couldn't agree with you more. So that will do it for our uplifting and cheerful coverage of Isabella of Castile. Thank you so much for listening. Adios. If you liked what you heard today, please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcatcher you prefer. I don't know if you've heard about this, but I do believe we are going on a History Chicks official field trip to London in June of 2020. Do you want to be involved? Do you want to receive the information? Well, go to the website www.likemindstravel.com and sign up to receive notifications when we get our specifics. It'll be very exciting. There's a lot planned so far, and I think it's only going to get cooler. So do watch this space or go to that website for updates. The guitar solo in the middle was performed by Minstrel Spirit. It's called Dream of Spain. And the end song is by the Chambord Vihuela Quartet and is called La Vita Fugue.